Happy old 2017. Just a few hours left, and then we can say Happy New Year. Question for you this morning, what's wrong with small things? What's wrong with small things? Years ago, my brother and his wife and uh, daughter went to, um, I went with them to Yosemite and we stayed at um, Wawona Lodge, I believe, and uh, the motel room was um, just big enough for, uh, for a bed and a, a chest of drawers and it was dinky and uh, not really good for, for living in but just to sleep and leave. So um, uh, I, I didn't want it. I don't want this small room. And a restaurant, the uh, fancy restaurants um, have uh, their petite portions <clears throat> and uh, the waiter brings, the, brings what I've ordered and here's this little uh, piece of meat and a little vegetable and a little roll and I think, wow, the price isn't petite. <laughs> I don't want a fancy plate, I want food. I don't want small. And uh, TV and computer screens, my coworker uh, operated off a laptop and he would come out, he'd uh, motion me over and he'd say, you know, you need to see this, this is very important. And I looked at his screen and I said, uh, I'd like to see it, I can't. And uh, he'd say, well, let me blow it up for you. And I, I said, no, that's, it's just too small. Why can't he have those side-by-side uh, -side monitors? They're, they're this wide and I have to turn my head to see what all is on the display. Um, so small is, uh, is not good. We have a disregard, a natural aversion to small. Unfortunately, this carries over into the work of the Lord. And uh, that's what we want to address today. I've heard much concern in 2017 about the furtherance of God's work his churches and assemblies, which is good. But there's um, much unrest and worry about the physical size of assemblies, which is not good. So I'd like to look in Zechariah chapter four. Zechariah is the second to the last book of the Bible. Zechariah chapter four and um, Hopefully we'll come away from our study this morning with some uh, practical New Year's resolutions. Zechariah chapter four. And verse eight. Moreover, the, the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple, his hands also shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? Who here has despised the day of small things? Let's pray. What a precious time this is, an opportunity, Lord, to have you speak to us, to speak to our hearts, to encourage us. We pray that you'd use it in Jesus' name, amen. Who has despised the day of small things? Literally, um, 
in the original, it's sawed off. It's cut off things. Who's, who's uh, despised that? Or who mocks or ridicules the things smaller than our expectations? Or who discards or disregards the day of humble, innocent, modest, plain things? The Lord encouraged Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, the... Um, the nation of um, Judah had been taken away captive, and here was a remnant that returned. And uh, Zerubbabel had it in his heart from the Lord to rebuild the temple. And so the Lord encourages him. I want you to turn left one book to Haggai. And let's read Haggai chapter 1, starting at verse 14. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came out and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people saying, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? What's the background here of the, of the temple? What's the occasion of, um, of the uh, laying the foundation, the rebuilding of the temple? Well, you know of Solomon's temple, how uh, his father, King David, had assembled great um, materials, and um, Solomon had finished this temple about 949 BC. Let's, um, let's turn to First Chronicles and see what, uh, what materials that um, King David had assembled. It really speaks of the magnificence of this temple that, um, that Solomon was able to build. First Chronicles 29, starting at verse 2. Now for the house of my God... I have prepared with all my might gold for things to be made of gold, silver for things of silver, bronze for things of bronze, iron for things of iron, wood for things of wood, onyx stones, stones to be set, glistening stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones and marble slabs in abundance. In addition, David says um, in verse 3 that he had taken from his own, uh, his own account um, his special treasure of gold and silver. Verse 4, 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the houses. And uh, he talks about, uh, again, gold for things of gold uh, to be done by craftsmen. And uh, then in verse 6, the leaders of the father's uh, house houses, uh, leaders of Israel, they gave, in verse 7, five 
thousand talents um, and ten thousand derricks of gold, ten thousand talents of silver, and eighteen thousand talents of bronze, and one hundred thousand talents of iron. I don't know where they stored all this, um, but it was huge. It was um, uh, bigger than Fort Knox if we were to compare. So. Um, it was a magnificent temple. We don't, um, we don't have photos, we don't have um, even word pictures of the, of the temple, but it was uh, ornate, it was magnificent, it was um, opulent, but for the Lord. The temple was destroyed some uh, 400 years later by Babylon's King Nebuchadnezzar during the reign of King Zedekiah. And uh, we can read about that in 2 Kings 25. If you turn with me to 2 Kings 25. What, um, what could possibly happen to um, a building that magnificent, that ornate? 2 Kings 25 and verse 9, speaking of King Nebuchadnezzar, he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house, all the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great he burned with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls of Jerusalem all around. Verse 13, the bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord and the carts and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried uh, bronze, their bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, the shovels, the trimmers, the spoons, and all the bronze utensils with which the priests ministered, the firepans and the basins, the things of solid gold and solid silver the captain of the guard took away, the two pillars, one sea, and the carts which Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these articles was beyond measure. Imagine the treasure um, of the destruction of the house of the Lord that um, uh, Babylon just, um, just uh, took, cut up as if it were, uh, as if it were nothing. They, uh, they shipped all that stuff to, um, to Babylon. And um, did we talk about The, um, the people of the land who were taken also into, um, into Babylon. So they were, they were taken as well as the, uh, the riches of the temple. Seventy years passed, seventy years in Babylon. People were born, people had their lives, they were, um, uh, they were strangers, they were uh, aliens in Babylon because uh, they were uh, from Judah and Israel. But a remnant was allowed to return. That's, uh, that's good news. And some of these Israelites were old enough to remember what the old temple looked like. All right? So the Lord spoke what was on the hearts of Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the remnant of the people back in Haggai chapter 2. When he said, 
Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? The Lord knew the hearts of these, um, these, older, uh, these older Israelites and uh, he, he's, um, he's reading it for them. Uh, is it in your eyes, is it not in your eyes as nothing? Physically, it probably was about the same size, but the foundation of the new temple promised little of the magnificence of Solomon's temple. Consider in Israel and Judah in King David's reign that there were a million and a half soldiers. He had an army of a million and a half. So how many regulars, how many civilians would that be? If every tenth civilian was a soldier, then it would have been 15 million uh, inhabitants of Israel and Judah. The remnant of Israel that was uh, transported to Babylon, they raised up families and now they are back in Judah, is not 15 million, but 42,630. By comparison, in the 2010 census of Newark, they counted 43,000 people. Population of Newark, 43,000. And Union City was 70,000. So this, uh, this remnant that came back to Judah was simply a remnant. It was a small remnant. These weren't wealthy land barons, but they were refugees from uh, captivity in Babylon. They didn't have the resources of the Davidic kingdom. So we can understand why this, uh, this foundation would not uh, support the, um, the magnificence of Solomon. But let's continue in, um, and turn back to Ezra. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. We'll look at Ezra chapter two. Oh, you know what, we're back in Haggai, I'm sorry. You want to keep, uh, keep a finger in uh, Zechariah and one in Haggai, and eventually we'll get to Ezra. But um, let's, read, um, let's read God's encouragement in Haggai, ch uh, chapter 2, verse, starting at verse 4. Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. So the, so the temple is not going to be as opulent as that of uh, Solomon. Be strong. The word conveys the idea of bind together. You gird something together for strength. Three, uh, three sticks are much stronger than 
the three individually if they're bound together. Significant that he was giving this challenge, this uh, encouragement to, um, to the governor and to the high priest and to the people, bind yourselves together, be strong. Don't be faint-hearted or careless or indifferent. It was an incredible challenge to do so much in the construction of the temple. Humanly speaking, they had such little resources. So the Lord enables them. He strengthens them by his word. He says, um, be strong. And in verse four, work, work. There's work to be done. A lot of work in building the temple. But it's the Lord's work. That's the, that's the real motivation. This is for the Lord. It's his temple, and um, they can uh, rest their weary heads at night knowing that they had contributed to what he so desired as uh, for his honor and for a witness to the nations. For I am with you, the Lord said. What would it mean to the leaders, to the people, to have the Lord with them? Well, he was not just providing the manpower and the strength and the skills for the work, but he would be there working alongside them. Imagine the Lord, the, uh, the sovereign of the universe, the omnipotent one working alongside these people. To have the Lord present with them is to have all his resources at hand. Imagine you're driving down the the road, a deserted road, and your car breaks down. And uh, thankfully, you see a car in the rearview mirror. He pulls up and he stops, and he happens to be the engineer who designed the electronics on your car. And so uh, after making a quick fix, he says, um, uh, I'd like to accompany you to your destination so that you get there safely. Wow, are you kidding? You've just fixed my car, and now you're going to st stick with me for the next, uh, next miles. And so uh, when the Lord promises to, to be with them, he guarantees their success. Zerubbabel, Joshua, uh, people of the land, uh, I'm committed to the success of this project, and I will make it work. How could they not, not succeed? According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains with you. The Lord had promised uh, as the nation departed Egypt hundreds of years previously, I will dwell among the spirit, I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. God promised. God is trustworthy. I believe God's going to do what he's going to do. He's sovereign. But that he promises in advance so that we might recognize his faithfulness, his trustworthiness. That's major. That's one of his attributes. Do not fear. Do not fear. What a comfort is, uh, is this word from the Lord. 
They were surrounded by hosts of enemy, as we're going to find out, and yet they were protected by the Lord of hosts. They had no cause for fear. Skipping down to verse 9, the Lord says, The glory of this temple shall be greater than the former. How could this be? The old temple had the Ark of the Covenant. What was in the Ark? The tablets of the Ten Commandments. We don't have that anymore. That's gone. It's, uh, it was dismantled in Babylon, uh, probably. There are no Urim and Thummim. They would find that the Lord did not send fire from heaven, nor did he uh, rest his Shekinah glory over the temple as a authentication, as a proof that he was there. So how could the second temple be more glorious than the first? We'll have to wait and see. Even with the Lord's encouragement, though, the people had a mixed response to this laying of the foundation. Now let's turn to Ezra. And chapter 3. Starting at verse 7. Describing the, um, the, uh, the foundation again, the laying of the foundation. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. And it talks about um, dividing up the work among the Levites, among the people, in verse 8 and verse 9. And so in verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout, when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and head of their father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted for joy, so that the people could not discern the, shout, the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. What a sight. Here's um, the joy of having this foundation, new foundation laid, and the uh, shouts of the younger folks that um, it was being restored. And yet, um, as loud as the shouts of joy were these um, lamentations, the weeping of the old who, uh, who knew that this temple would not be physically, visually as glorious as the old. We older saints need to be careful that our longing for old glory doesn't discourage 
our young workers. There was opposition in Ezra 4 and verse 1. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of their father's houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do, and we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Well, that was very gracious of the, um, uh, the adversaries to uh, offer to help. Oh, I, I lost that tool. Uh-oh, tool over here broke. Uh, we're not going to work today. We're... Um, uh, today's a holiday. Imagine having these non-Israelites working on the temple of the Lord. Their, um, their opposition was very sly, very crafty, and thankfully um, Zerubbabel was able to see through it, and he told them, you will not help build a house for our God. Perhaps the measure of the effectiveness of God's work is the intensity of the resistance against it. Because we have in verse 4, the people of the land. Uh, they tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And then in verse, um, verse 6 and uh, 7, 8, we're introduced to uh, Rehum in, uh, in verse 8, the commander, and uh, Shimshai, the scribe. They were opposed to the work. They realized what, the, um, uh, what these Israelites were doing. So they sent a letter to King Artaxerxes, and uh, they... Uh, they painted a very dismal picture of, um, of these Israelites as rebellious, as, um, uh, as ne'er-do-wells. And so in uh, chapter 4, verse 23, uh, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum, uh, Shimshai, the scribe, and their companions, they went up to ha in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews and by force of arms made them cease. Thus, the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased, and it was discontinued. So, the work rested for 14 years. It ceased. Thankfully, in the second year of King Darius, um, it resumed. And if we... Um, we skip down to chapter 6 and verse 14. So the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Iddo. And they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the command of, of uh, Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which is in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. 
Thankfully, it's finished. The temple is done. But I still wonder about the glory of the second temple. How can it be more glorious than the first? Uh, the first was magnificent, and it had it contained such um, such treasure. It lacked the new temple lacked the visible manifestations of the Lord's presence and the tablets of the law. The Lord glorified his second temple by the presence of his son, Messiah. We read of the Lord Jesus as an infant being presented in this temple as an, uh, as an infant. Last week, Howard um, encouraged us about the creator of the universe humbling himself and coming to our earth to be savior of sinners. And that was a glory for this temple to have him presented there, the Lord Jesus. Again, at 12 years old, we find the Lord Jesus quizzing the teachers in the temple and uh, really astounding them by his understanding and knowledge. During his earthly ministry, he daily preached and taught in the temple. What a, what a sight, what, a, um, what an event that must have been to have the Lord of the temple speaking there. We read also that um, the Lord performed healing miracles in the temple. And about that same time, jealous for his father's honor, he drove out the money changers and the merchants with a whip from this temple. We find the glory of Jesus full of grace and truth greater than the glory of Moses with the law. And so we'd much prefer to have that glory in the new temple than that of the old. Following Jesus ministry and his uh, death, his burial, his resurrection and ascension, we find the new temple further glorified by the apostles in Acts chapter five. And verse 19. The um, the apostles had been imprisoned for their, um, their preaching. There were multitudes of men and women coming to the Lord. And so um, in verse 17, Acts 5, 17, then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in prison. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and, and speak to the people all the words of this life. What were the words of this life that the apostles spoke? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Simple. Simple preaching 
nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Must be saved. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. To whom did they preach in the temple? Well, there were people who were religious and they were going about their heavy religious duties, seeking to find favor with God through their work. And the Lord Jesus might call to them, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The apostles preached to those hungering and thirsting for righteousness to whom the Lord promised they will be filled. The apostles preached to those who were seeking reality and peace and answers from chronic heartache. They may have preached Christ the way, the truth, and the life. The Lord glorifies structures like our chapel with his words of life today. Have you heard them? Have you acted on them? The preaching goes out today. That was the, um, that was the old temple. What application can we make to God's work today? Is his work too small to merit our time, our resources, our lives? <clears throat> Is it too small to be effectual in today's technologically sophisticated world? <clears throat> How large was the church at Philippi? There's no mention in scripture, no music ministry, no singles group, no youth pastor, just elders and deacons and saints. No size of uh, churches given at Ephesus or Antioch, Colossae or Jerusalem, Corinth. Why not? I believe it was to avoid our comparison and our dependence on numbers. One might think that the bigger the church, the purer the gospel ministry, but that's not the case today. Better to be small and vital with a living testimony, a large testimony, than to have a big and lifeless congregation. We should be measuring our effectiveness by the greatness of the God we proclaim. How well are we getting that message out? Israel was the smallest of nations, the least of all peoples, but their God was great. Even Solomon wrote, the temple which I will build, which I build will be great, for our God is greater than all gods. But who is able to build him a temple since heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him? 
Who am I then that I should build him a temple except to burn sacrifice before him? Yet, even in his greatness, God promises to be with us. He promised to be with uh, Zerubbabel, with Joshua and the people, and he promises to be with us today. He said, the Lord Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Amen. So he was with the disciples, with the apostles, but he says, I will be with you to the end of the age. That's, uh, that's us today. It's possible for us to be like Gideon and to respond as Gideon did when the Lord made a similar promise to him. The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said to him, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, oh my Lord, if, oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? C.H. McIntosh is a commentator of the Bible and he describes the word if as the monosyllable of unbelief, if. True faith never answers God with ifs for the simplest of all reasons that faith looks only at God and there are no ifs with him. Faith reasons from God downwards, not from man upwards. Faith has only one difficulty, and that difficulty is embodied in the question, how shall he not? It never says, how shall he? This is the language of sheer unbelief. So uh, we talked about um, benefits of God's presence for Zerubbabel and Joshua. What are the benefits of God's presence for us? God's presence ensures that we have 24-7 access to his resources, his infinite resources for the work he's called us to do. His comfort, his strength, his fighting for us, his victories are ours. It's an astounding truth written in Mark 16:20 of the disciples and they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. The Lord is working with us today. May we labor in the reality of that. May we realize that the Lord is working with us. In 2 Corinthians 6, 2, we read that we are workers together with Christ. We're co-laboring with him. We labor in proclaiming his gospel. We labor in building his church. He said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it.
Someone quoted Matthew eleven twenty nine and said, "Take uh, Jesus' words. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light." And uh, he pointed out that the yoke has two parts. It's got uh, um, a part for two, um, a, a wooden yoke used in third world countries has a, a part for two animals to pull alongside each other. And so when the Lord Jesus says, um, take my yoke upon you, we realize that that yoke is made up of uh, a, a harness for me, but it's also got that harness for the Lord Jesus and we're merely working alongside him as he gives strength and direction and guidance. God does allow trials, apparent setbacks in his work. He does this in major part for us to look to him. If you want to be miserable, C.H. McIntosh says, look within. If you want to be distracted, look around. If you want to be peaceful and happy, look up. Look unto Jesus. There is a precious truth in 2 Corinthians 4. The Apostle Paul was, um, was under tremendous pressure. <coughs> he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 8, we are hard pressed on every side yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. In the original, that word Paul uses for perplexed means to be without a way. Paul says, um, I was at a dead end. I was at wit's end corner. I was at a loss. But then he says, I was not in despair. And he uses the same word, but with a different prefix on it in the original. And it means, I was not totally without a way. Sure, I was at a dead end. I was hemmed in. I was blocked in. I had no place to go, no earthly way. So I looked up. And I realized I have a heavenly way an infinite resource in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm perplexed. I'm without that earthly way, but I'm not in despair. I have the resource of the Lord Jesus Christ, a heavenly solution to my problems. Another lesson God teaches us is the importance of faithfulness and endurance and the value of present opportunities. J.O. Fraser was a missionary to Burma 100 years ago, and it was on the mission field that he learned the importance of faithfulness in seemingly trivial duties and of making the most of present opportunities. He wrote this, the plain truth is that the scriptures never teach us to wait for opportunities for service but do exhort us to serve in the things that lie at hand. 
The Lord bids us to work, watch, and pray. But Satan suggests, wait until a good opportunity for working, watching, and praying presents itself. Needless to say, this opportunity is always in the future. Another lesson through God's work is that he humbles us. And a definition of the word endurance is that we remain under a trial until God completes his purpose for it. D.L. Moody wrote about um, God's humbling. He said, keep us little and unknown, prized and loved by God alone. Someone else has said, our reward is in heaven where it's, uh, it should be. It's best kept there. Jim Elliott, missionary, uh, missionary martyr to Ecuador said, we are simply a bunch of nobodies trying to exalt somebody. So in conclusion, if you are without Christ, without the only savior, do not wait for the new year. You may see him before midnight tonight. Receive his words of life this afternoon and make no delay. For those who know the Lord, I offer New Year's resolutions under a heading, do not despise the day of small things. First, old timers, don't pine for the good old days. Don't pine for God's glory as we remember it, as we may drown out the shouts of joy from our younger workers. Second resolution, perplexity is okay, despair is not. We may be hemmed in, roadblocked, without an earthly way, but with an upward look, we have a heavenly way, an unfailing resource in our Lord Jesus Christ. Make it your resolution to explore his benefits, to make his presence a greater reality with the goal of greater reliance on him. What does it take to do that? Make that yours. And then finally, be strong, be strong, be strong, and work, for the Lord is with us. Let's pray. Thank you for the lessons of this, um, this humble temple, Lord, and how we can take those into our lives today. We pray that we would resolve in the coming year to recognize your reality, to uh, depend on that, and to glorify you through it. Lord Jesus, we ask in your name, amen.